Ecclesiastes wrote, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Much of Jewish tradition has not changed at all, and yet in order for us to be sitting here, perched on the edge of the new year of 5773, having survived for over 4,000 years, Jews have had to adapt, and yes, we've changed a lot. One of the most important traditions from our Torah that has not changed is the Shemitah, the obligation to give the land a rest every seventh year. Shemitah and Shabbat are the origin of our sabbatical. During Shabbat and on sabbatical, we're asked to cease from work for a day or a week or even a year. This year, I received the incredibly generous gift from the congregation of a six-month sabbatical. As you all know, this is a year of rabbinic transition for us at Emmanuel. This is the last year that Rabbi Pierce will be serving as our senior rabbi. Prior to my sabbatical, I did some very heavy soul-searching about my relationship to all of you, to this congregation. Although I want to continue to lead and to guide and to support this community as your rabbi, I was clear that I did not want to become the senior rabbi. With the support of the board of directors, I wrote you a letter in December about my decision to stay at Emmanuel. And having made this decision, I was freed up to move into my sabbatical with an open mind and an open heart. Transitioning from a six-day work week to structuring my own time immediately gave me the chance to do something I hadn't done in a while, which was spend a lot of time with my kids, Eli and Gabriel. Beyond giving me more time to just be a mom, I prayed that my sabbatical would invigorate my path, would infuse my spirit, my faith, and me. In retrospect, my sabbatical had three major movements, winter, spring, and summer. And here we are, in the fall, together, entering the new year, again on Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, a time of turning, of changing, and of return. And now that I've returned, I want to tell you where this sabbatical took me. According to Jewish mystical tradition, there are 36 righteous Jews in each generation whose sole purpose it is to save the world and to prevent destruction. Lamed and Vav are the Hebrew letters that combine together make up the number 36. So these super-righteous individuals are called in Yiddish the Lamed Vavniks. The Talmudic sage Abaye wrote, there is never less than 36 righteous beings in the world who greet God's divine presence. It's written in the book of Isaiah, blessed are those who wait for him. And the word him, lo, are the letters Lamed and Vav. Now, as a young Jewish girl, I often pondered, what would it be like to meet a Lamed Vavnik? And if I met one, would I even be able to tell that they were? In January, the winter, I received a call from a Lamed Vavnik. Her name is Ruth Messenger, and she's the president of American Jewish World Service. When I first met Ruth 15 years ago over breakfast down the street at Ella's, I mean, the Jewish tradition is you could meet the Messiah anywhere. <laughs> Ella's, Baker Beach tomorrow night, here in the sanctuary, it's always possible. I knew immediately that I was in the very presence of someone who intently, seriously, and with every fiber of her being sought to change and heal the world. Today, Ruth has over 300 projects in over 75 countries, and she called me this winter to invite me to serve as the scholar-in-residence on the rabbinic student delegation to Mucha Kuchka, Mexico, 
a tiny Mayan village in the Yucatan whose residents live in poverty. Rabbi Fendis, Rabbi Bauer, and Rabbi Jaffe have all been on similar journeys with American Jewish World Service when they were rabbinical students. In Muchakuchka, like so much of the world's poor, the residents live just above the poverty line, earning approximately $5 a day. They have intense anxiety that they and their families could easily slip and fall beneath that line. For two weeks, we slept in palapas, in hammocks. Think Gilligan's Island. If you're too young to know the reference, just imagine an episode of Rabbinic Survivor. (laughs) We ate what the villagers ate, beans and tortillas and pumpkin seed paste. Under a relentless sun, we studied and we worked. Twenty young Jews, okay, 19 young rabbinical students and one middle-aged rabbi. (laughs) Along with the community of Muchakuchka, we built a massive cement tilapia fish tank that would sustain this community for future generations. The manual labor was not the most challenging part for me. It was the Jewish part that was. The rabbinical students were conservative Jews, non-denominational Jews, Reconstructionist Jews, and Orthodox Jews. And the only Reformed Jew was me, the rabbi. Shabbat came, and the Orthodox students needed to erect an Eruv, a symbolic wall around the neighborhood, which enables traditional Jews the ability to carry on Shabbat. An Eruv is usually built with a wire, with tape, and with a tape measure. There I was in a tiny, dusty village in Mayan, Mexico, and instead of making a joke about those crazy Orthodox, which I would usually do, (laughs) I stepped inside our tradition, and I helped them build the Eruv. I didn't need the Eruv for my Shabbat, but another Jew did. I've often felt judged by those more religious than I am for being a Reformed Jew, liberal, a woman, a lesbian, you name it. And in this village, the lens shifted for me, and I recognized the place in myself where I actually hold some contempt for other Jews' religious practices. In Muchakuchka, surrounded not only by Mayan villagers but by Jews, I recognized what was small and judgmental inside of me. Ruth's, mes- Ruth's mission for Jews to be Laor Hagoyim, a light to the nations, by healing and helping the nations, takes its inspiration from Jewish texts. They build long-term relationships and commitments in each one of their communities. In my eyes, every time I look into Ruth Ruth Messenger's eyes, I see Alamid Vavnik. One of my colleagues shared the story of returning to El Salvador for her second year on a service trip with AJWS. She was there with Jewish teenagers, and when they got off the bus to work, the El Salvadorian villagers asked them who they were. The group replied, we're the Jews. (laughs) The whole village erupted in applause, saying, We remember you. We know the Jews. You're the ones who fix what's broken. What a way for the world to know the Jews. Like so many Jews, my relationship with Israel is complex, rich, challenging, and lifelong. Like the way you relate to someone in your family, someone who can be quite difficult at times. It seems only fitting that I would dedicate a part of my sabbatical to confront this part of myself. In the spring, I traveled to Israel. The outside lens on Israel, from the vantage point of the outside world, is focused usually on the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, or more recently on the fear of an Israeli preemptive strike against Iran. However, internally, in my mind, there are equally, if not more, pressing issues that are going on in the ground. And you see it and you feel it when you're there. Women don't have the right to read Torah at the wall. As a Reform rabbi, I can't officiate at a conversion or at a wedding. 
And so I decided to engage in civil disobedience around the issue of religious pluralism while I was there. Now, I know I was just there on sabbatical. I could have had falafel and hummus and gone home, but I didn't think it would be right. The Israel Religious Action Center has been organizing freedom rides so that all women have the freedom to sit where they want to on the Egged public bus system in Israel. The Israeli Religious Action Center won a lawsuit that went all the way to the Supreme Court that made gender segregation on buses illegal. However, there are still many bus lines where women are forced to sit in the back of the bus. Gender segregation in democratic Israel. So I went on a freedom ride in Jerusalem from Ramot into Measherim. A woman, a Jew, a rabbi seated at the front of the bus surrounded by black-headed bearded men staring at me angrily while all the Orthodox women got on at the front of the bus and moved to the back to be seated. I'm pretty sure that my one freedom ride didn't make that much of a difference. But I am certain that as Iraq's support of religious pluralism has continued, it opens the doors for democracy for all Jews in Israel. They're also the founders of Women of the Wall, whose focus is to allow women access to read Torah at the Western Wall. And as a rabbinical student, I stood with them as men threw chairs over the partition on those of us trying to read the Torah. I believe that democracy in Israel should extend to all of its citizens, Orthodox and Reform, men and women. At times, I have not even gone to Israel because it seemed difficult to engage in these conversations. But I always go back because it's what we do. We Jews engage, struggle, and we have to change as Israel changes. In the spring, I was asked to lead a justice seder at the White House. It was the vision of an organization called Ben the Ark, a Jewish partnership for justice, to bring the serious issues of food, hunger, and justice to Washington, D.C. through the vehicle of our Haggadah. Ben the Ark takes its name from the words of a Gentile Lamedbavnik named Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So in preparation for the Seder, I attempted to read the Farm Bill. (laughs) Just so you knew, the first Farm Bill in 1933 was 54 pages long. The proposed 2012 Farm Bill that is now, has not yet been passed, we might say, is 1,091 pages long. I have not yet finished it, and my sabbatical's over. So... The Farm Bill impacts everyone in this country and around the world. Crop subsidies, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, otherwise known as food stamps. And you might remember that I went on food stamps five years ago with Eli and Gabriel to see what it was like for just a week. It also impacts international food aid. What was the difference about doing a Seder at the White House in Washington, D.C.? First of all, the drosh was given by Tom Vilsack, the Secretary of Agriculture. Second of all, there was a tomato on the Seder plate. Now, as most of us know, we try to change every year to make the Seder more relevant. And the tomato tomato was there to represent the plight of the Immokalee farm workers, who are Latino, Mayan, Indian, and Haitian immigrants who work in low-wage jobs all throughout Florida. I sat next to one of the farm workers who had flown in from Florida to sit at the Seder table with Jews and non-Jews trying to lift up the idea of food justice to our government. The Seder was translated into Spanish for him. This Seder described the real modern-day slavery that goes on not 3,000 years ago and not outside of our country, but right here in the United States. The Coalition of Immokalee Workers is an organization led by the tomato pickers to end slavery, trafficking, and other unsafe working conditions. In the worst cases, workers are enslaved in Florida, 
held against their will without being paid. At times, they're chained and locked up overnight. Other times, the employer prevents them from leaving by holding onto their passports and their visas. The coalition has persuaded almost all the major retailers, including most of the large fast food companies, to sign a fair food agreement by which the companies agree to buy tomatoes only from the wholesalers that have a zero-tolerance policy for slavery and sexual harassment. They're the companies that offer minimum wage protections and pay workers a penny more a pound for tomatoes, which means a lot. The Seder in Washington gave me the inspiration to continue to change our Seders here each year by adding something new to the Seder plate. Our own slavery may have been 3,000 years ago, but today in this world there's plenty of slavery to go around. And it made me wonder if my boys and their children and their children's children would have a tomato on that Seder plate and what else might be there. So my sabbatical began with a fish, a tilapia fish tank in Mayan, Mexico, and a Lamed Vavnik encounter with a woman named Ruth Messenger. In the tradition of Rosh Hashanah, we are supposed to eat the head of a fish while saying, may it be your will, God of our ancestors, that we be like the head and not like the tail. At the tail of my sabbatical, I traveled somewhere that I always wanted to know, the state of Alaska, a very non-Jewish place. Of course, as soon as I arrived in the tiny town, which I promised them I would never name, I was discovered and surrounded by the Alaskan Jews who otherwise are known as the Frozen Chosen. <laughs> this town of 2000 has at times boasted the highest per capita population of Jews in Alaska. There were no cell phones or internet plaguing the landscape. Daylight lasted 20 hours. We walked under glaciers, picked and ate some of the 18 different types of berries that ripen in the summer, and lit Shabbat candles close to midnight as the sun was setting. And I met Rob Goldberg. Rob Goldberg grew up like many of us. His parents taught him Yiddish. It is bar mitzvah on the East Coast. But unlike most of us, Rob became modern-day Jewish pioneer, a real chalutz in the outback of Alaska. Rob is unlike almost any Jew I've ever met. He built his family home with his own two hands. He grows his own food in their garden and fishes and crabs during the summer. And during the long, cold, dark Alaskan winters, he's a painter and a luthier. He builds cellos and guitars. He and his wife Donna adopted two young Roma sons from a Romanian orphanage 15 years ago. In addition to learning Romanian to keep his kids connected to their native language, Rob and Donna took their adopted boys back to Romania so that they would stay in touch with their families and their Roma culture. When they located their son's biological sister, Rob decided it was his responsibility to teach her English. So late at night, after painting and building and fishing and serving as the city building commissioner, he Skypes her in Romania and he teaches her English. When the cruise ship started to surreptitiously dump waste into the Chilkat River, Rob and his neighbor, a Jewish lawyer, <laughs> took the company to court in a real-life David versus Goliath battle. It resulted in the cruise company being barred from cruising the fjords in that area, and the toxic waste dump was over. And when the Alaskan Electric and Power Company was unable to find a safe place on the waterways for a hydro plant, Rob investigated topographical maps, and after hiking through the snowy riverbanks, he single-handedly located a hidden source of water power that wasn't on any map. His discovery circumvented the building of this power plant and preserved the sockeye salmon spawning ground on the river. 
When I met Rob, he seemed very familiar, yet there was this otherworldly quality about him and his life. It wasn't just the affinity of meeting a Lanzmann. You know how you feel when you're in the middle of nowhere and you meet a fellow Jew? It was the way everything lit up when he talked about his Yiddishkeit, about his Judaism, and the simple acts of healing a broken world. Sitting at the edge of the Chilkoot River, my partner Justine and I watched bald eagles plucking salmon from the water and eating them in the trees. We saw moose wandering through meadows and an Alaskan brown bear on the edge of the river staring into the water at the thousands of salmon jumping home out of the water. One day I got into a small fishing boat about 14 feet long and I made my way up with a few friends to subsistence net fish for sockeye salmon. I've been fishing all my life, but I never had anything like this happen before. I asked my friends if I should pray on the way upriver, and they laughed at me and they said, we have a rabbi in the boat, of course you should pray. I did not pray for fish. I actually said the prayer, O say ma'aseh v'reshit. Thank you, God, who makes the wonders of creation. It was simply a thank you prayer, surrounded by mountains and glaciers and trees, water, and perfectly blue skies. As we threw the net overboard, I asked them, because I really wanted to know, how many fish did they think we would get? And they said, on a good day, maybe you catch five or six, depending how long you stay out in the water, maybe a dozen if you're really lucky. As soon as the net was in the water, I could see the buoys being pulled under. And we rowed back and forth frantically to pull in the thrashing fish. At first there were three, it was so exciting, then seven, then another ten, then twenty, and another ten. And then they looked at me, standing in the boat, covered in scales and blood, and holding a moose bone over my head that I'd been using to hit the fish over the head. Big, 14-pound salmon. And they said, Rabbi, stop praying. When we got the net into the boat finally, we counted 50 salmon. The limit is 25 per season. My two Alaskan friends were amazed. They had never, in the 30 years that they lived there, experienced that kind of abundance. The mood on the boat was what Abraham Joshua Heschel would call radical amazement. And there the lens shifted for me in the shadow of the glacier. I was silent in the face of creation. I was back in Genesis with Adam and Eve, in the garden, in the wilderness, on the Chilkat River in Alaska. In the story, the story that marks the creation of the world, which we celebrate tonight, after Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge, God calls out to Adam, Ayeka, God says, where are you? Adam's response is silence. He does not answer the question. And I've always assumed and always taught that it was because of fear or shame or hiding or doubt that Adam did not speak. But in Alaska, I realized it was because of awe. And that day, in the middle of nowhere and everywhere in Alaska, the Torah itself shifted for me. In the face of creation and the awesome power of God, Adam's only response could be silence. That was a teaching for me. I will admit that the first thing I thought of as we got the boat onto the land is, I am so happy I don't have to wait in line at Whole Foods to get salmon for dinner. <laughs> and I thought of just taking the fish and cooking it. And I said, well, can I take one and cook it for dinner? And they said, 
Sydney, you're from the city, aren't you? And I said, I am. Why? And they said, because we have 50 fish in the boat. We all have very busy lives. We have to figure out whose smoker is working. We have to figure out who has enough wood to chop to fill the smoker. We have to fillet these fish. It's going to take us about eight hours. Then we have to do a call out to the freezers in the town to make sure there's enough because we're going to share it with everybody in the community. It's a little different than the way we buy fish. Because in Alaska, I met a group of Jews who chose to leave the life of urban excess, of nonstop traffic, of polluted water, of waiting in line for food at a store, never finding a parking space, of feeling so connected at every moment to everyone and everything that it becomes almost impossible to really connect at all. No one there asked me about when I was going to get the iPhone 5, or about my new car, or even what college my son was applying to. They never even bought water in a bottle. Instead, they met at the spring that bubbles out of the mountain on Mud Bay Road, where everybody in the town comes with their big water containers, and they kibitz and share the news of the day, and they connect face-to-face because they don't have Facebook there. They asked me, they wanted to know, what is it like to be a rabbi in a synagogue that boasts more than 100 times the number of Jews in our town? They said, do you know all of them? I said, not yet, but I'd like to. They asked me, what was it about Judaism that has kept me Jewish? They asked about my favorite Jewish books, what I love to teach, what Jewish music inspired my soul, and who was my teacher. And Rob Goldberg, having brought in three Dungeness crab by hand from the river, handed one to me. Rob, I told him, I can't eat this. It's not kosher. And he said... Rabbi, this is the most kosher crab you could ever eat. (laughs) I looked him in the eye, and I looked up at the sky, and I looked into the water, and I knew exactly what he meant. And so I came back to this life, to the blessing of being your rabbi. And so I want to thank those who were my teachers and who inspired me on this sabbatical. First, I want to thank Jackie Reed, my congregant and friend of blessed memory who was taken from us this year too early. A year ago, she and her husband Paul stood on this bima and chanted from Nitzavim. She taught me about God and faith and grace. Rob Goldberg taught me that returning home to Judaism is a constant quest and that living a Jewish life can happen in the shadow of a glacier. Rabbi Lawrence Kushner, who teaches right here, right under this dome, each week. How many of you have ever studied with Rabbi Kushner? He's been the Emanuel Scholar for 10 years, and... These are a few of the 20, 25 books that he's published that have been translated into German, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Polish, Dutch, and Hebrew, and he teaches right here an incredible gift, an incredible scholar, probably one of the greatest scholars of our generation. And if you haven't studied with him yet, he's like right here in your home. So come study with him tomorrow. And if you feel like you can't get here to study, we have a new program that Rabbi Jaffe is going to talk about called Keva, where we actually send people to your homes to study, and that's not a threat. (laughs) I want to thank my sons Eli and Gabriel who know that working as a rabbi means sometimes working six days a week, 
sometimes seven. And time with your family suffers if you're a member of the clergy. This year is Gabriel studies to become bar mitzvah, and Eli prepares to apply for college. I got to press the hold button on life and be with them. I thought about when I got here 15 years ago, and Eli was in the first twos class, just across the way downstairs in our preschool. Being a mom, witnessing my boys growing into the men that they will become, reminds me that time and times are always changing. And I am slowly but surely, like the rest of us, becoming a part of the past as our children and their lives become a part of our future. In ten very short days, we will gather back here on Yom Kippur to read Parshat Nitzavim. And we will read these words, Lo b'shamayim hi, it is not in the heavens. This Jewish tradition of ours is a place of inspiration, of great wisdom, of beautiful insights, and of incredible comfort. This tradition belongs to you. Too many times we feel that Judaism belongs to somebody else. It's too far away from us. It's just inaccessible or not even relevant. At some point in your Jewish life, take it from me, you will need your Judaism. You'll lose someone. You might get sick. You'll definitely struggle. It might even be this year. And don't worry, your Judaism will always be here for you. But as your rabbi, I encourage you to find out more about your Jewish soul before suffering compels you to do that. Because suffering comes to us all. Study with Kushner at the temple. Sign up for a Keva study in your own home. Speak truth to power. Get involved in one of our justice endeavors. Or if you don't really feel like this is your home and you belong here, call one of the rabbis. There's lots of us. Come to our study, sit down, and ask us that burning question that you've always had about being Jewish. Golda Meir was Israel's first ambassador to the former Soviet Union. On her first trip to the former Soviet Union in 1948, she expressed doubt about whether or not any Jews would show up to greet her. She thought they might be too afraid to reveal themselves or they might not feel connected enough to their Judaism to warrant greeting her. She arrived, and she was mobbed by tens of thousands of adoring Jews. She went silent. And then all she could think to say to each and every one of them as they shook her hand in her native Yiddish was, Adank eich vos ihr seid geblieben Yidden. Thank you for still being Jews. We're all somewhere on our Jewish journey. I am so grateful to have returned here to be your rabbi, so I say thank you. Rosh Hashanah is not really the time to say Happy New Year. That's only the salutation we use. Rosh Hashanah is the head of your change to do your tshuva with one another and with a new lens, a different focus. Return to what's beautiful about your Jewish self. Take a sabbatical for a day or a week or take the year off. Find the richness of what's already yours and then share it with the world around you. And I certainly invite you to help me find more Lamed Vavniks in our world. I'm pretty certain there's at least one sitting here with us in the sanctuary tonight. In the words of Hashivenu that we pray together for this year, we say, Hashivenu Adunai Elecha Vinashuva, Chadesh Yamenu Kekedem. God, God, please cause us to return to you. We will return and renew us and renew our days 
as they were in the very beginning. Amen.